0: This season of What She Did Next is brought to you by Women's Agenda, a daily news publication for women.
1: I mean, I think my experience in Sierra Leone was the preparation for COVID. As terrifying it was, Ebola, I knew that, I knew it was kind of like doing a PhD in emergency management, being on the front lines. Learning, listening, it felt like I was going to school as well as being able to help contain the virus. Welcome to
0: this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Finding your purpose and direction in life isn't always easy. But sometimes a moment comes that suddenly puts everything into perspective. My guest today is Yanti Tarang, and she's a registered nurse from Australia who lives in the US, where she's spent the past year working on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. She's also the founder and executive director of Learn to Live, a global health not-for-profit she started in response to seeing her own family members in Indonesia suffering from chronic and preventable illnesses. But Yanti didn't start out as a healthcare worker. In fact, in her 20s, after taking off from Australia to see the world, she was playing in a rock and roll band and touring the US when suddenly Hurricane Katrina hit her adopted city of New Orleans. Seeing the devastation around her, it was the prompt Yanti needed to rethink her direction in life and she decided to go back to university to study nursing. She's since gone on to become a respected leader in the public health space. And is soon to write a book about her journey. I spoke to Yanti about making the leap to the healthcare sector, her experiences working in hospitals and clinics around the world, and what she's learnt from setting up her own not-for-profit organisation, which she continues to lead today. Her story is absolutely compelling and her courage in helping others is truly inspiring, so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Yanti Tarang. And just a warning that this episode does contain mentions of death and grief, so please consider this before listening, particularly if you might find this triggering. So Yanti, there are so many interesting elements to your story, which we'll be talking about today, but can you start by telling us a bit about your background and what life as a kid looked like for you?
1: Sure. I grew up in a small country town in Australia called Kyneton. It's about an hour by train from the city of Melbourne. And it was mum, dad, me, my sister Isha and my brother Nicholas. My dad is Indonesian and my mum is Australian. She um, grew up in Marambina in Melbourne and my dad is from North Sulawesi, Indonesia. And I went there a lot as a kid. I first visited Indonesia with mum and dad, I think in 1981. I was two. And so I think I was already sort of versed in this sort of international like uh, splitting of worlds of my family from Indonesia and my family from Australia. Yeah. Um, my upbringing in Kyneton was looking back now like idyllic and uh, utopic it feels as though now in this world. Well, yeah, you mentioned your trips to Indonesia.
0: I wanted to ask you what you remember about those trips as a kid. I think you went quite a few times when
1: you were younger. Yeah, yeah. Um... I don't quite remember the first first time but the other times when I think I was oh I think I was like maybe eight and then when I was 13 they were I guess extremely formative for me but I didn't realize how much they were imprinting. It felt different but then it also felt at home. I have a huge family in Indonesia. I was always surrounded by lots of aunties and uncles and cousins and early on I look back and I I was imprinted with a disparity like the changes or the differences between Australia and Indonesia, right? So mm. I knew that life was different in Indonesia and say there wasn't the same access to water or the roads were different or the schools were different or sometimes the bathrooms were different and it was fine for me, but I, I guess looking back now, that that information was stored very much in the back of my brain somewhere um, mm. considering the future work that I ended up doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny you say that because my dad lives in Malaysia and we visited him, you know, from when I was an early teenager, I guess. And I think the same. Like I ended up going down a similar path and, you know, I travelled a lot and became interested in that international Aid and world out there, but yeah, I think it was just seeing such difference at that age and not necessarily processing what totally. all of that meant at the time. But yeah, knowing yeah. that things were different and that maybe we, yeah, we were lucky, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I think that word "lucky" came about early. It wasn't that my parents said that I was lucky. I just realized what some people had to live with and. Yeah, I could tell early on that like a lot of my family members had to work so much there was extra struggles with their day-to-day um, that we didn't even have to think about at home. Mm. Um, and that occurred to me as a, as a young girl um, and, uh, yeah, I guess it imprinted.
0: Well, when you finished school, you studied a Bachelor of Arts initially and set off to see the world. And at some point during your backpacking adventures, you ended up in the U.S., And I was intrigued to find out that you got involved in the indie rock scene (laughs) and you were the lead singer in a couple of bands. So how did all that come about and had music been something you'd always been into?
1: Oh, that yeah, gosh. Um, So going from Kyneton, I ended up going to Melbourne to do my final year of high school. And I think that was the first place that I was like, oh, like, the world is getting bigger and bigger even though I'd been to Indonesia as a child but that was with my family and then I'd always been interested in music so I did play through high school and in the final couple of years of high school I started sort of playing piano more and guitar and you know I was fortunate enough to be able to go and travel and um, whilst I was in Europe backpacking with my guitar um I was severely pickpocketed on the bus from the Vatican and oh. I got back to the hostel and there was a guy there called um, Matt Brown. Um, mm. He said, do you want to have a beer? I mean, Matt was probably around my age and I was like, well, I don't have any money for that. And he's like, I'll buy you a beer and we can walk around Rome. And so we just walked around Rome because I had no money and we became great friends. He was a music- musician as well. and. um couple of days later he's like, Why don't you come to Florence? You could stay with my friends, like they're all studying there. We can stay there for free. And then it was this introduction to this new group of friends. And those guys all went to a university in the United States called Tulane. I had no idea where that was and they were like, It's in New Orleans And I was like, New Orleans? Isn't that where jazz is? Anyway. We became very fast friends. It was me and these these five crew and they ended up going back to the US and I had enough money to fly to New Orleans and I did it. And uh, I was there for uh, I think maybe seven or eight months just living America, working at some crappy cafe that I still go to because I still live in New Orleans. <laughs> um, and Um, I did come back to Australia. Um, my brother was very sick and unfortunately Nicholas did pass away in 2000. And so that was extremely traumatic. Um, Mm. but the year before that I was in New Orleans, I guess that's when the seed of New Orleans got into me and it's magic. I would, I should say. So yeah, so that was in 2000. And after Nick died in August, I think I could say my life started all over again. Mm. You know, your life starts all over again when you lose someone, particularly a sibling, and it's a new knowledge and life looks different, and so it's a new way to navigate the world. Um, From there, I always said, like, I would go back to the States. So in 2003, yeah, I went back to New Orleans and instantly uh, felt like I'd come up for air. A few days later, my friend John Siegel, who I'd met years before, he said, are you still playing music, Yanti? And I said, yeah, yeah, like a little bit. He's like, why don't you come over and have a jam? And uh, I think because I was like so ready for a sea change or a new life, um, I think after years of grief and like trying to deal with, you know, where I was going and who I was, there was this – amazing opportunity to play with these friends. And that's when my rock and roll career started. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: Right. So tell me about that. What did your rock and roll career
0: look like? So you were a singer and a guitarist and a songwriter, I guess.
1: Right. So we like wrote dozens and dozens of songs. We toured the United States. People liked the music and we were getting really, really good. And Mm. yeah, we played in I mean, it's, I look back and it was some of the greatest times of my life. I mean, we got to a point where we had written a whole record. We had just done a tour out, I think, the West Coast, and it was the summer of 2005, and we went to Joshua Tree, California. We recorded our record out there for two weeks in the desert, And I mean, this is an important date because this is August of 2005. So I think we finished recording on, oh, I don't, maybe the middle of August, went on a bit of a trip. I went to Australia. My plan was to come back August 29th of 2005. And that's the day Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. And that was the day that everything changed.
0: Well, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people listening would recall the devastation of that disaster. I mean, it was huge, obviously. It was in the news in Australia as well. But, I mean, you'd been living there for a period of time. As you said, the magic of New Orleans had got under your skin. I mean, can you share a bit when you did end up back there? I mean, what was that experience like? What What did you see? What, what happened to the city?
1: Oh, I mean, I actually didn't get back into New Orleans for I think two and a half months and yeah, got back to a broken city. I got back to a city that was under curfew and it was all dark because there was no electricity. And I just look back now and I mean, I just didn't even comprehend the magnitude. Um, You know, I was pretty, I was young and going through a disaster like that and maybe not as been as affected as so many people in new orleans but seeing again the inequities based on the color of your skin based on class all of this stuff was obviously like i was absorbing it and mm-hmm. it was soon after that that the rock and roll band pocket box we broke up which makes sense we lost everything in the storm our studio our house and we were young you know like you're not sort of prepared emotionally to be able to like not only manage like a band but ha- what your place in the world is now. Mm. Um, there's nothing like a disaster to sort of question your own mortality purpose and um, direction in life. It's a pretty hard stop.
0: Yeah I know you've said that experience gave you a lot of perspective on a whole lot of things and it was the catalyst for you to become a nurse. I mean, you could have chosen a whole range of ways to find this purpose or a new direction, but how did you land on nursing as the the path for you?
1: There's a couple of things. I had actually never thought about nursing, which is interesting, Um, but I had been affected by healthcare and nurses. Uh, My father was in a terrible accident in the 60s in Australia um, that caused to have burns on his hands and mum and dad would always talk about how the nurses would always take care of dad so that was always part of the narrative then with my brother being sick you know like they I mean that's who I interacted with as a, as a kid at the hospital if my brother was in the hospital and so there was always this they were always on a pedestal for me I saw that they were the, I, it occurred to me very early on that they were the backbone of a system that took care of people. And then after when Katrina happened, very quickly I was like, what am I doing? I'm playing in a rock and roll band. I can't offer anything. I can't do anything. And I, you know, said to my ex at the time, like, I think I should go back to school. I think if I, I think I might try to do nursing and get in and then maybe one day I'll be able to come back to New Orleans and actually do something and help people. And so that's when I, um, Moved back to Australia to do my nursing degree. Right. So what did the early
0: days of nursing look like for you?
1: Yeah, so my I did finish my grad year at uh, St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. Grueling, necessary though. Had some tough managers but thankful for those early days. Did come back to the States, did come back to New Orleans and – I had to get my registration in America so it was going to take some time. And at the time my very good friend of mine, um, Mara lepere she's now a big Hollywood production designer, so she works on, in the film industry, and she's like, while you're waiting for your nursing degree to come in, you should work on set, in on movies, and be the on-set nurse. So I did a few movies. Um, <laughs> I was <laughs> – I was on, what, 21 Jump Street, uh, Contraband, The Lucky One, Terminator. Anyway, right. a, ra- a, random <laughs> time, a very random time. And then I also, from there, finally got my registration and I began work at Children's Hospital in New Orleans.
0: I mean, I imagine the movie set nursing was quite fun but perhaps not quite the impact you were hoping to have when you made the leap to nursing. Um, But you did find a way to channel that purpose. So in 2011, you set up your own not-for-profit organisation called Learn to Live. So Can you tell us a little bit about that
1: and why you started it? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, Learn to Live, it actually did come out of me being on set of movies being like, gosh, I'm getting paid too much money to be just sitting here not utilising my skill. And then at the same time, you know, talking to dad at home and hearing of my own family members dying of chronic disease or preventative disease and Mm. also having worked a couple of years in the actual hospital system, I was really exhausted by that being a floor nurse, being an ER nurse, you're just part of a cog in a wheel. And as much as you're helping people and that's your job, it's exhausting. And so I think it was this sort of like crescendo of all of it. And I'm sitting on this movie set and I was like, I just want to do something else. I want to do something more. Like how can I address the systemic issues that my family have to face every single day in Indonesia? with the skill base that I have and the access to the healthcare and healthcare capacity that I've been lucky enough to access. So through university, um, reliable Wi-Fi, being able to work in a you know state-of-the-art hospital, all of these things come because I simply live in the United States or I live in Australia. doesn't mean I deserve it more. And that mm. inequity for me resonated all the time. And so that's what drove me to start writing my proposal for Learn to Live. And, you know, speaking with my dad as well, I was like, dad, maybe there's something that like I can do with all of these people that I've collected, well, friends, healthcare workers, skill base in Indonesia. And you know what the other part, which was super important to me that still to this day drives my work was the desperate need for people, particularly in more affluent countries to get the perspective of how lucky they were to have the education they have, to be the healthcare workers they are. Um, You know, in the hospitals people complain and they're always like, I don't want to do this. And I'm like, you're so, like you have such an amazing power to be able to help somebody understand how their body works. And I wish that I could create something to give you the perspective that you should not just be, like, thankful and gracious but to have gratitude for it and to be able to share it mm. and how much that would do for them in terms of their future healthcare work.
0: And can you just explain a bit about what Learn to Live does?
1: Yeah. So Learn to Live, well, it started as an idea that I wanted to have a do something in Indonesia in health. But now Learn to Live has grown to an international organization and we partner with communities, you know, wherever our partnerships grow. So initially it was Indonesia, Laos, Kenya and South Africa. And essentially with an organization or with a community, together we'll pool our resources and we will create programming that can help not only like capacity build and increase people's knowledge about their own personal health we can also bring primary basic clinical care we also address water um because it's very early on when i was working in indonesia it's like i can't address primary health without addressing the fact that you don't have access to running water and mm. so then we created a water project out of that and i mean truly learn to live is about partnership and it's about sharing of knowledge and. Creating a global community, which I think for me is what the magic is. Um, When you're in a learn to live clinic on a very remote island in Indonesia or in the mountains of Laos, when you're in the program together with your local colleagues and your patients, it's one of the only places that I feel like in the world that I've traveled or when I've traveled that is truly equal. It feels equal. The Mm. sharing of knowledge. Um, the respect and it's because we created our own space and I really really love that and it's I only see glimmers of it but um, Mm -hmm. it certainly keeps me going
0: well starting a not-for-profit is no simple task and particularly to do it in a way that's sustainable and as you said in partnership with local communities which is so important how did you know where to begin and what were some of the first steps that you took
1: Oh, it's a really great question because I honestly had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> didn't go to school for nonprofit management, actually, didn't really know anything about it. Um, right. <laughs> but what I did do, and what I think I recognized early on, was that you need to surround yourself with people that do know. And yes. I in my leadership that has continued, if you're going to work with me or I want you to work together, you have a skill that I don't have and so I need you to tell me. And I never pretended that I knew. Um, I would obviously try to get as much knowledge, but like in the growing of of the 501c3 in the United States, it was complicated. I had a really wonderful friend. She's a lawyer. And I was like, Carrie, do you want to be part of learn to live like, you know, the bare bones and help me get this? And she told me what to do. Mm -hmm. And then I hired, um, you know, fundraising, obviously. And then I was able to meet a woman named Rachel Whitworth and she worked in public health. And I was like, can you help me inform how to build the best programs? And that's a very humbling process because I think that people think that leaders are the ones that need to have all the ideas. And I really don't believe that. I think they just need to be really good at organising people and the right people and then giving those people a platform to be who they can be. Well, I guess
0: it's now about 10 years since you started Learn to Live. Looking back now, what would you say are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned or some of the biggest obstacles that you've had to overcome?
1: I think when I first had my first clinic in Indonesia, it was one of my biggest learning moments as a leader. I was like, people... They just need to know when they're going to (laughs) eat. They need to know when the day is going to end. They need to know when they're going to sleep and what time they have to be up the next day. And those little things, it occurred to me that to get the best out of a person or your colleagues or people who are working for you, you need to make them feel safe. And not safe as in security safe. Safe that they can flourish and be whoever they want to be and feel as though that they have some control of their environment. Once those things are satisfied, I realized that we could create magic. And so, Mm. a lot of my programming and leadership and things that have like guided me, and like that was one of my biggest aha moments. And so, continuing and growing programs, and I've had you know dozens of people come with me all over the world, I just keep. I just make sure I take care of those things in all of these different random places of the world. And if I do, then your skill base will just flourish and, Mm. and it can do it anywhere. Like we've stayed in some pretty wild places. (laughs) and yet My team would still continue to be optimistic and positive and work through it. The other key for me was anyone you're working with. And if they have an issue or they're, upset or they're feeling anxious or they're hungry or something you need to listen to them and like it may not be as like amplified for you and you know that you've got a million other things but they are so integral in the success of whatever you're trying to do that you need to take the time to listen and to be genuine and take care of them mm. and i try to do that in everything i do now from my patients to my family Sometimes people just need to be validated. And um, that's a huge lesson. Um, I mean, I've certainly had public health obstacles. Um, You know, we had a community in North Sulawesi where we worked and, you know, we just didn't do enough sort of partnership and investigation with like the dynamics of a community on an island. It's very, very complicated. And, you know, we built a water project and now we wish that we'd change it a different way, which we are going to do but they're like the intricacies of like learning from the public health world. And Mm. I, you know, I, I've got all of those to tick off. We are not perfect, but we give it a go. And if it doesn't work, we go back to make it better. And my other, I guess, aha thing is that I'm anywhere I go, even when I leave my house, I'm a guest and that's a privilege. And I just always have to have that mindset.
0: So more recently you've been working as an emergency room nurse in a New Orleans hospital and this past year has been a very different one for you. Right. When did you start hearing about the COVID pandemic and as a healthcare worker, how did it unfold for you?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... Over the last few years, I would moonlight in the ER as a nurse just to keep my boots on the ground, just to keep me like clinically up to date of what's going on, particularly in New Orleans in healthcare. And over those few days, the start of March, people started presenting in the ER with the dry cough, fever, some not fever, lethargic, some had lost their taste and smell. And at the same time, on the news and also sort of on posters in the, in the, um, the, the break room COVID-19 virus. It's a virus in Southeast Asia. There was no kind of I feel short-sighted of us right now, like in, you know, in hindsight, but mm. yeah, it was that, that was kind of like those two separate things going on. They little did we know it was like this together. And It was March 8th that the CDC from New York called and said, we have a patient who's flown into New York City. They're from New Orleans. They're presenting with these flu-like symptoms. We don't know if she has COVID or not, but we're putting her on a commercial flight and sending her to New Orleans and then she's going to drive herself to the hospital where you can test her. I was working that day and because of my past experience in infectious disease, particularly Ebola. They asked me to take care of the patient, don the PPE. I felt quite comfortable with it. And it turns out, interestingly enough, she actually had the flu. And so I tested her and she was flu B positive. So I was like, well, that's great. Um, But just go home and isolate just in case you did come from you know, essentially the hot spot in the world for this virus that I don't really understand, COVID-19, um, she was discharged. And I think that was around 1 p.m. And then by 7 p.m. that night, the whole front of my pod of the ER all had a similar virus, but we just sent them home because we didn't know what it was. And it turns out that all of those patients had COVID-19 probably. And she wow. was the full positive. And very quickly after that, it revealed how unwell and how ill-equipped we were to be able to manage the influx and the acuity of the patients that were coming in.
0: Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, the numbers associated with COVID in the U.S. are well, went on to be pretty staggering. I mean, working on the front lines, though, you were seeing it from a very human perspective. So, I mean, can you describe what it's been like in the hospitals over there and what your role has been?
1: Initially, it was extremely, we were very stressed. Um, It was upsetting because it's such a lonely disease. Um, Anyone who was quite sick and who we had to suddenly intubate, they weren't able to see their family. And I don't think that quite sunk in because we had so many patients that were so sick. It was just, we were just like, I don't want to even call it automatic pilot. We were just on a roll, moving patients through, trying to isolate. And then my role changed at the hospital itself. A physician, Dr. Maslanka, and I were put in charge of putting up the covid tent out the front of the hospital that was to triage patients to help keep the people in the hospital safer because at this point we were having covid positive patients and as we all know now like it's super infectious people not in masks everyone's going to get it healthcare workers which they did um and then they're just passing it around so for the two weeks after march 8th then i was in charge of making sure that this COVID tent that had like different areas was able to sort of triage different patients. We were able to say, can you take care of yourself at home? We'd have to make these assessments. We're all in PPE for the ones that were really sick. Then we would get them in and they'd be seen very quickly and probably quickly go to the ICU. Mm. Um, So that was my early role in COVID. And then on March 27th, I was called by the national guard and the state of Louisiana to see if I would be one of the directors of a COVID hospital that they were going to build in the convention center in New Orleans. And I mentioned Dr. Meslanka before, so they recruited her the day before and she had requested that I do this with her, which I'm very fortunate to her um, for giving me the opportunity, but she called and said, I really hope you'll say yes they want us to build a hospital in 10 days, a 1,000 beds. And mm. I was like, I'm going to go and do this. This is an opportunity that I can't pass up, and we literally should have started working on this two weeks ago. Mm. And we proceeded in 10 days to open a hospital, um, a makeshift mm. hospital in a, in a convention center, and um, it had a 1,000 beds. It was built by the National Guard and the Navy. And me, Dr. Maslanka, Dr. Carlson, Dr. Gershonik oversaw the operations and how everything would run—the nursing, the patients, the beds, the exclusion—I mean, everything—and we built wow. it all in ten days. And we, the hospital, was open and running for two hundred and ten days over twenty twenty. Saw hundreds of patients. We had no fatalities, which I'm very proud of, mm, and. Wow. We also weathered five hurricanes or something and – Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Which is just crazy. And, yeah, we managed to keep the people of Louisiana as safe as we could. And Mm. it was particularly the older population of Louisiana. We were able to isolate, keep them safe, get them well, discharge them so that they could be safe.
0: Right. Well, this wasn't your first experience of a pandemic. You also worked in Sierra Leone during the Ebola outbreak, which must have been incredibly confronting. How similar or different was that experience and how did it prepare you for COVID?
1: I mean, I think my experience in Sierra Leone was the preparation for COVID. Looking back now on that life trajectory, um, Sierra Leone for me was, I think, a personal it was something that I wanted to do. There was an opportunity there. Um, i not sure who'd reached out to learn to live to see if we could help with the response, but we're not like um, an emergency management uh, organization. You really need to know your place, especially in disaster, and that's not what we do. But for me as a leader and, you know, I'm also a trained nurse, I have the ability to be able to Go and help in a clinical capacity, and as terrifying it was, Ebola, I knew that it would. I knew it was kind of like doing a PhD in emergency management, being on the front lines, learning, listening. It felt like I was going to school as well as being able to help contain the virus, and thinking about how to describe the experience. Um, you know, very different to what happened with COVID at my hospital that I ran every single patient of mine who had Ebola died um, and died a really traumatic death. And that was hard to watch and live every day. The conditions were very tough. We It was probably like 40 degrees out every day. Our Ebola treatment unit was in an old school and people were really, really sick and as I said, everybody was dying. So it just made it really complicated. I learnt a lot about leadership. I learnt a lot about what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, it's very profound experience.
0: Well, you spoke very powerfully in an interview with the New York Times, actually, about your experiences as, as a frontline worker with COVID and, and the personal toll that that's taken. But thinking, I guess, about yeah, the work you did with Ebola or COVID, I mean, what's been the hardest and perhaps the most rewarding aspects of doing that type of emergency work?
1: I think the hardest for me, the hardest like point with these particular patients is they don't get to say goodbye to anyone. So it's almost like when they see me, if I'm seeing you in an Ebola treatment unit, things aren't good. Like, you're not in a great place. And it was similar like that at the beginning of COVID and has continued now sort of, you know, in the last few months back in the US. To be taking care of symptoms that you really have no control over, like I can't say, look, here's some medication and everything's going to be okay. To be sort of treating symptoms without an outcome that I could guarantee that you're going to live is extremely difficult and it feels like you're holding a secret, you know, like I don't know if you're going to make it. Um, And often our patients weren't at that place where I was. I'd just seen like 10 COVID patients that were doing really badly and probably six were going to die. My next patient, I don't know, they still have the hope, which is really great, but when you're like burdened by The knowledge, it's really, really hard and hard to process and I think makes the work, that type of work, tiresome. That's why there's so much fatigue Um, and that's probably the biggest challenge with um, working in infectious disease like this is um, with Mm -hmm. no answer, right? So like Ebola, there's no cure. There's just isolation and we just hope you make it and really that's what's going on with COVID as well. I don't know how your body's going to respond and I just want to, we're just going to try to do everything we can to like keep you strong, just to hope that your body can fight it. And that was really hard to live with and to process every single day. And, you know, you're kind of like, where's the humanity? Like you had a story, you know, my patients, every single one of them, they all have a story, they have a family, they have ideas, they had dreams, uh, that humanity is very hard to manage.
0: Yeah. I mean, are there any particular moments that have stuck with you, like hard or rewarding moments throughout all of that?
1: Yeah. I think my last patient in the Ebola treatment unit, his name was uh, Muhammad. He was four years old. He'd contracted Ebola. His mum had just died in the unit, um, but he wasn't quite sure. He wasn't showing really bad symptoms as yet, but When I went into the Ebola treatment unit, like, when you go in, like, you can't just go, oh, I need to go pick up some water. You have to take everything in. And the last time that I went in, I saw Muhammad, and I'd got a plastic bottle, and I'd filled it with rice. we got two of them, and we, like, were playing and making a song. It was just, like, another surreal moment. Like, we're playing in an Ebola treatment unit. You're four. Your mum's just died. I don't know, it was profound trying to find joy in such horror and I'll always remember him and I found out he did die a few days later. Mm. Um, Yeah, I mean I think that I have really different little clips of people's lives that I was privileged to spend time with or to have these moments. I had that with COVID as well, a wife on the phone to her husband of 50 years. I've been in the intersection of these moments with people and, yeah, I mean, I think that is, yeah, incredible. Hmm.
0: How do you avoid burnout in your work and how do you look after yourself with all of this that you witness?
1: It's a really good question. Um, You know, I think... I mean, I think people go, oh, you're such an extrovert, you're very social, and I am. Like I truly feed off people their energy. I love learning from them. I love being around them. But, you know, the older I've become and the more the more I've sort of been a leader in this type of work, I actually take more time for myself. Um, I just like s- spend time, I don't know, like I'll go on like bike rides. Um, I started painting during the pandemic. And I hang out with people that, you know, everyone has those people in their life that it doesn't feel like work. Sometimes it's just nice to be with your closest friends that they're just there. And I think very quickly in this type of work, like I realized who those people are and, who, and what type of outlet they are for me. And so spending time with them can actually regenerate my energy. Um, yeah, I guess that that sort of, it, it's a common question. People go, oh, you must be exhausted. You have burnout. And I certainly did have burnout at the end of last year. Um, emotional, total emotional burnout. I remember it this one week, like I was very depressed for a whole week. But I think, you know, as we get older, right, like I'm 41 and, you know, you trip up and then you do it again. You're like, gosh, I worked too hard or I gave too much of myself. I need to save a little bit for myself. In the future, and I think you just get better at it. And I think it's like either this work or whatever work for whatever person, I think you start to save a little bit more for yourself so you can give a little more.
0: Well, you finally had the chance to come home and see your family in Australia after such an intense year. How did it feel to land back on Australian soil? And what was the first thing you did when you got out of quarantine?
1: Oh, yeah, gosh. Yeah, we landed into Sydney, Alex and I, and I was just talking to my sister about it today. Like even when we decided that we wanted to come back to Australia, that in itself was like its own journey within a journey. And I still didn't feel like I'd made it until I was on the other side of the barricades at Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne. And there was still so much, you know, that could go wrong before that. And so when after two weeks of quarantine and, you know, not having our flights cancelled and really like getting out of America, which was amazing, like that to be able to do that, like I actually still can't believe we were able to get out. As soon as I got through and then I saw my dad standing there and he was, and it was just so wonderful to see him and know that the virus hadn't touched him, you know, like, and he, it was almost like ignorance is bliss. He's like, oh, hi, Jan. come on, the car's <laughs> over here, mom's at home, we've got some sausage rolls, how are you feeling? And it was like, that for me was like extremely joyous. Like it was emotional for me, but it was such a relief. That he hadn't been touched by the virus, um, maybe from the news or the lockdown a little bit, but mm, that was a great gift. Course, yeah. that was yeah. a really great gift, and even to see all my friends and family here, um, Australia feels—I don't know—it's like it, it, it's 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 quite it's blissful. Um, it's really amazing. Well, it must feel very different here (laughs) compared to what, well, certainly
0: with your work, but yeah, even the situation in the US is quite, I guess, opposite to where we've ended up here in terms of numbers and freedoms and all that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I think it's like extremely, yeah, it's wonderful, but, you know, Australia's done a really great job in keeping each other safe. They've had this collective mindset. And it's, I'm really proud to be Australian when I walk the streets right now because people put on a mask and it's actually about other people and to be around that in this world right now, it's such a relief.
0: So is nursing now your full-time role or how do you juggle that with your work at Learn to
1: Live? So nursing, I think I'll always have my hand in um, some type of patient care but I do think I've done my years in the hospitals. Um, I did work also in schools in New Orleans which was extremely rewarding and I love that. Um, I'll always be a nurse but I don't think I'll continue to do like the full clinical side of things forever mm-hmm. and I'll do learn to live. Um, I'm definitely at a crossroads right now I currently writing a book. And so I've got to spend some time on that. And hopefully 2021 is the time when I kind of think about where I want to go next. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about the book. Uh, Yes. So um, the book should be, I'm not sure when it comes out, but I've got to write it first. Um, (laughs) um, I'll have a draft by uh, June or July this year. And the book is essentially based around my public health work and also memoir based of like how I got there. Great.
0: And I don't know if this question actually applies to you, but what does a typical workday look like for you now? <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's a really good question. Um, well, at the moment here in um, Australia, when I'm, I'm still working at the moment consulting for schools in New Orleans. So right now my days start about 7 a.m. I'm working with a lot of principals um, doing a lot of COVID things in five different schools in New Orleans. And then I do some learn to live stuff. And then the afternoons, I'm pretty bad at working after 2 or 3 p.m. So I'm much more of a morning person. I'm much more productive then. So that's kind of like my work day. But before that, when I was in America, oh, it really didn't stop. I'd sort of be up answering messages and questions and text messages, which I can say is not the healthiest thing to do. Um, But with the state of COVID and everything, I had to sort of be available particularly for the hospital Um, Mm -hmm. and then yeah I mean I've sort of regularly done like two or three different positions none of them all full-time and I've loved my life being like that.
0: And looking back now having made the leap from music to nursing all those years ago was it the right move for you and is you know your work in healthcare what you thought it would be?
1: I think it was definitely the right move but I would just say music's taken a backseat. I right. still play, I still love my musical instruments. Um, actually, Pocket Fox, the record that we recorded before Hurricane Katrina, we didn't release it and we're releasing it in the next few months, which is really exciting. So maybe I'll play oh, some wow. gigs. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'd hope that I'll start playing music again. But definitely healthcare is yeah. It, I mean, it's funny. Everyone's like, that's your career. And I'm like, I'm still learning. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> There's yeah. so much.
0: But I think that's what's interesting at this point in time is that, you know, we're so used to being defined by a job or this is what I am, or this is what I do. And that's just not the world we live in anymore. I mean, we have so many choices of how to design our lives, which is partly totally. why I started this podcast, because I think it's so yeah. interesting to see all of the different ways people are choosing to design their lives and careers or live their lives you know we don't have to be
1: one thing exactly
0: so we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and you've certainly made several brave leaps in your life and career what would you say has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it
1: I think one of the bravest moments was honestly last year when I got the call from the National Guard and the state to say, we want you to help build this hospital. Um, I knew that I could do it, but I just, I was so, I had such imposter syndrome and I don't know, I don't know if I faked it till I made it, but uh, (laughs) I just was myself and asked all the questions and I did have to be brave, I believe, at that point. Um, I had mm. to have confidence and, yeah, that would probably yeah. be my my bravest moment and probably donning PPE for the first time going into an Ebola treatment unit. I remember having a flash of my family and being like, is this worth it, you know? Mm.
0: And um, what do you think pushed you forward? I mean, that is something many others would run away from. Where do you think that courage came from?
1: I think, and it's, like, so interesting talking about PPE now, like, I trusted the system. I trusted that the organization I worked with had the adequate PPE. I trusted the protocols um, and it did keep me safe and it was very meticulous and it was the best um, and in complete opposite to the United States during the COVID pandemic. So Mm. we couldn't trust the system at the start. And seeing healthcare workers having to have that critical thought around that um, questioning whether they were safe or not was so upsetting. Whereas my first experience in one of the most terrifying things I've ever done, I I trusted the system mm. and because it was right and they'd be meticulous. And I think, I mean, that's a whole podcast in itself really, isn't it?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. And look, you've mentioned a few women in your life, like in your work and your personal life that have been important to you. Who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you?
1: I feel like it changes quite a lot. The women that I'm reading about and because I live in the United States right now who, who truly inspire me, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the justice that just passed, her story is so phenomenal and I loved how tenacious and what are, what are the words? I mean there's all the words to describe her but she was strategic. And I really yeah. admire that. And she read the room and she evolved. And I think it's, I mean, because she's extremely intelligent for one, but she knew what she was up up against. And mm. I really admire that. And I, I take that on. I think that's just as important as intelligence and leadership and it's being able to read the room and knowing where your place is. And then if it, if that needs to change and that may not be a great place, particularly for Ruth, she said, you know, being a lawyer in like law school in the fifties, like the only woman. Um, Mm. I really admire her for all of the work that she's done, but particularly of the, like the way she would read a room and maneuver around. And more recently, like, I love my Michelle Obama. I mean, Oh yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I just, I mean, after her book and like how she stood up for different um, things around nutrition, health, and just particularly like her, I don't know, like how, where she grew up in the South side of Chicago, my partner's from Chicago and understanding the dynamics and the resilience needed to grow up in the South side of Chicago when she did and how she grew from where she came from. It was really wonderful as well. And if there's
0: someone listening out there who might be thinking about a big career or life change of their own, do you have any final tips for them?
1: Yes. I think that I've always seen all risks or something that I was afraid of as an opportunity. So I would recommend to anyone to flip the script Usually something that you're afraid of or you're like, oh, I probably wouldn't be good at this or, you know, maybe that's too hard or maybe that meaning they'll see that I'm a fraud or something like that. Just do it. You've got nothing to lose, you know.
0: That's my, that's my tip. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today, Yanti. I've absolutely loved chatting with you. It's been wonderful, Jackie. Thank you. That was Yanti Tarang, founder and executive director of Learn to Live which you can find at learntoliveglobal.org. We'll put the details in our show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe and we are proud to be a part of the Women's Agenda Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. If this episode has raised any issues for you, help is available. In Australia, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 to access 24-hour crisis support.